May the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Amen. Dear fellow Christians, you've all heard words that were pronounced incorrectly, sometimes creating strange and wonderful imagery. Children do this best. Our daughter named the dandelions when they were in their white stage and they'd blow and the things would come off. Those were frizzles. Our own grand, one of our granddaughters, many of you probably heard, was so exasperated, so disgusted with her sister because she was such a chatterbox that she complained that she was just exhausting. And then last week, another of our granddaughters held up an older dress, can't be that old, she's not that old, held up one of her dresses and, and said, Mom, do you decorize this? And it's interesting how that, that sort of thing is cute with kids, but not so much with adults. <laughs> I can give you a variety of different reasons for that. It can also be amusing when we spell and pronounce words correctly but use them badly. In a convention essay I once wrote, died in the wool, D-I-E-D. And of course my old English professor was there, of course it's supposed to be D-Y-E-D, and he ran up to me after, he just couldn't wait to point out the, point out the problem. And He said he found it amusing, he, he thought of sheep dying just before they were sheared, and, to me, it brought to mind a man who wanted to be buried in his Sunday best woolen suit. All of this is, is interesting. It can be humorous. We've all heard people use words, pronounce them correctly, but use them wrongly, and it comes out saying often the opposite of what they mean. For example, how often have you heard, I could care less? The expression is, I couldn't care less. To say, I could care less, means you do care. So if that's what you mean, go ahead and keep saying that. Or, if worst comes to worse. Well, that means things are getting better. If worst is coming to worse, then we're progressing, so it's all good. So again, these can be kind of entertaining. It's not a big deal. But one of these words just is, it seems like almost every generation uses this word wrongly and uses it a lot. Literally. Literally. And it's almost never used correctly. It's almost always wrong. In fact, it's literally always used wrong, which is just what I did. My boss literally blew up in front of the whole staff today. No, no, I'll, I'll bet he didn't. No, he, he literally just melted down right in front of everybody again. Probably not. Now again, sort of entertaining, but there's a problem. And the problem is that we unconsciously apply how people communicate today to God's Word. And we assume that God communicates to human beings like we communicate, which is using exaggerations and hyperbole and using words incorrectly to convey a message. And he doesn't do that. 
and we have no right to apply that standard to God's Word. You've heard people use this in society, and, and it's, again, can be kind of funny. I've, I've literally told you a thousand times not to put your dirty clothes on my side of the room. No, you haven't, but if you say that, that's not the point of the statement, and you get into more trouble. I could literally give you a million reasons why that's a bad idea. Now, again, we take that and we apply it to God's Word mentally, subconsciously, or unconsciously. And once we learn not to do that, then God's Word opens up to us. We can actually focus on what God is actually communicating to us, understanding that He speaks precisely, He speaks literally, and He communicates always and only truth. So with that, as our background, we turn to our text for this morning, found in the 17th chapter of Luke, beginning there with the third verse. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is God's word. Note well, no exaggerations, no falsehood, no embellishment, all truth, all the time. Confident of this, we pray. Sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. What a different understanding and appreciation we gain from God's Word when we recognize that God communicates with sinful human beings but does not communicate as a sinful human being like we do. He never uses exaggeration, hyperbole to make a point. He never uses anything that is in any way false in order to communicate truth. He just doesn't do that. He doesn't brag. He doesn't do any of the things that we tend to do other than communicate truth accurately, always. So we take that, for example, this morning, and in the verses immediately prior to our text, we apply it. And in those verses, 
our God tells us that it would literally, I'm using it rightly, be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around your neck than to offend one of God's little ones. Now think about that for a moment. We tend to exaggerate to make a point, but again, not so with God. He does not communicate with exaggerations. He doesn't communicate with overstatements. But we tend to read assertions like that millstone statement as though it was something we would say or to hear it as though we would mean it, which is not really, but, you know, I'm making a point. We do that. I would rather have a root canal without Novocaine than to go out with her again. You don't really mean that. But you use that exaggeration to try to communicate something. But God doesn't do that. And the benefit of coming to understand that is that then we can actually look at and understand, contemplate what it is that our God is telling us. When he says, in this case, better to have a millstone hung around your neck, he means just that. It's not exaggeration. It would be better, preferable, instant death, rather than to offend, to weaken or destroy the faith of a little one that believes in their God, one of Jesus' little ones. And then you can focus on the truth of that statement. You can focus on how desperately we need to avoid that, that great sin in God's eyes. Quick and certain death is preferable in God's estimation. So with this in mind, we scan down through our text, and several things jump out at us. God really does mean, for example, that we are to forgive our neighbor if he sins against us even seven times in one day. And by the way, he's talking here about the ministry of the keys forgiveness, announcing God's forgiveness because he included the and repents. And then we can announce God's forgiveness to him. He's not talking about our personal forgiveness. In another case, he brought that up. And the disciples are saying, how often do I have to forgive my brother? Seven times? Not seven, but seven times seven, or 77. There's an ambiguity in the Greek there. In other words, an innumerable amount of times, we offer our personal forgiveness unconditionally, as Jesus did on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. There was no evidence of repentance. But here's the ministry of the keys. So even seven times, he's not exaggerating. He's not saying, yeah, you know, you should do it a couple of times. We do tend to read such things, though, as though God is exaggerating. Almost certainly we do that. Because then we go on, and we read about if we had faith the size of a mustard seed, we could say to, and he pointed, this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would do it. Do you think about that? Do you imagine yourself having that power? Do you imagine yourself ever being, anybody ever being able to do that? So in your mind, do you just assume that that's sort of an exaggeration trying to teach a point? 
get away from that because he isn't. He doesn't do that. Literally true. If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea. Hmm. So when we recognize he's speaking literally, we still have a problem, don't we? Because what do you immediately focus on when you read that? Don't you think of the dramatic picking up of that tree with that root ball and being hurled into the sea? And how flamboyant that miracle would be, and I could do that if I had faith the size of a mustard seed? Whoa. But now read more carefully. Again, he says what he means, means what he says. He didn't say hurled into the sea, did he? What did he say? He said planted in the sea. And that's why the bulletin cover shows as it does. A tree planted in the sea. That's a greater miracle than pulling it up by the roots, which we saw a lot in Florida. You've probably seen it in a tornado. A tornado can do that, but I'll tell you what a tornado can't do. Plant a tree in the ocean and have it grow and flourish. So we're missing even the most spectacular part of that power, that ability. Exaggeration? Nope. Jesus is here saying, you could do that. The real question is, why? Why? And you see how when we recognize he's speaking literally and we can focus on what's he saying? What does that mean? What are we supposed to learn from that? First of all, why would anyone want to tell this tree to be uprooted and planted where it would do no one any good and yet it would flourish there? I guess passing fishermen could... Jesus, remember, was absolutely always all about the mission. Everything, everything he said, everything he did was all directed toward the mission, which is to bring salvation to mankind. That's helpful in understanding all of this. So why in the world would God give power to human beings to uproot a tree and plant it in the ocean or sea or a lake. Think mission. So what are we supposed to learn from this? It's literally true, but how? What does it mean? God the Holy Spirit through Paul gave us a clue. This is not a common word, the word planted. He gave us a clue when Paul wrote, in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, using the same word, planted. Paul wrote, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Paul didn't plant mulberry trees. What did he plant? He planted the word of God. What was his special calling? His unique calling? He uprooted the gospel from the Jews where it had been planted, and he 
took it and planted it in the most unlikely place for something like that to flourish among the pagan Gentiles. The disciples were about the flamboyant still. Oh, he fed thousands. He walked on water. And you remember how Herod and Pilate, they both wanted to see some, oh, do some of those magic tricks. The mission. I'm not about entertainment. I'm not about to entertain you, Herod, that's for sure. So what about this mulberry tree and planted in that most unlikely spot? Jesus is telling his disciples, you already have that faith. You already have enough for what your mission is. Your mission isn't to show off, isn't to have people look at you and say, oh, wow. It is to take that word of God and plant it, as I, Paul, did. And that just means to share it, and you have faith enough for that. And that helps us to understand what comes next in our text. Because Jesus is anticipating when that greatest of all miracle comes, when these people take his word, his disciples, take his word and plant it among the Gentiles, and it flourishes, impossibly so. What's going to be the danger? They're going to imagine that they did something. Look what great things I have wrought. Paul got that special thorn in the flesh, and he came to recognize why he got it. Because God accomplished great things through me. And to keep me humble, to keep me focused on where this power lies, he gave this to me, which made it obvious to all that it wasn't me that did it, clearly. So he talked them, he gave them this parable next in our text. And the parable is, is about this slave, and slave is a better translation here than servant. A slave who's out working in the field, and he says, which of you would have a slave working in the field, comes back in, you say, hey, hey, great job, buddy, sit down and I'll give you something to eat. Of course not. That you'd have him make your supper, and then get cleaned up, for goodness sakes, put appropriate clothing on, come and serve you, and then you're done. So there was a danger that Jesus recognized that his disciples would start to get all full of themselves when this spectacular miracle was performed through them by the power of God's word. And he gave them that parable. What's the message? What's the message to you? This is what you have to ask yourself every time you come to God's word. Why is God giving us this? It's a finite quantity, that book. And yet, this was included. What's the message for you? The message for you and me and them is not just the power all comes from God, to God be praised. It's if we have even done spectacular things in our minds for God, we've earned nothing from Him. Even if you and I spent every moment of every day in keeping with that mission to bring the gospel to others, what would we have earned from God? Not a thing. Then we're supposed to just say, no matter what we've done, if we've done it according to God's will, I'm just an unworthy slave. I've only done what I was supposed to do. And that's hard for us to wrap our minds around, isn't it? Because we tend to think 
if I do something in my mind that's magnificent, magnanimous, that's exemplary, then I've earned something. I've earned something from, well, I guess God, because I'm working for Him. God is teaching us here, don't look at it that way. That's wrong. Perfection isn't the maximum. Perfect conduct from you in everything you say, think, and do is the bare minimum. That's a whole different way to look at God's word, God's law. It's a humble approach, and that's why he used the term unworthy slave. We're more comfortable with something softer, gentler, like trusted servant. Well, here's the problem with that. A servant gets paid for what he does. A slave just does what he's supposed to with no thought of recompense or payment. We are unworthy slaves, even if we've done everything. And then we look at that mirror of the law, God's requirements, and we see, okay, it's not a maximum, it's a minimum. Perfection is a minimum. And what does that do for you and me? Despair. Initially, despair. It should, if we rightly see it. Absolute perfection is God's minimum. So if you can look back at your life and see one failure, one opportunity that you let slip away, oh, I could have told that person about his Savior. I could have brought it up. I blew it again. Failure. Abject failure because, again, the bare minimum is perfection. Then the weight of our sin crushes down on us. Then we recognize how far off we are, how inadequate. And then we scorn to shame any boasting about anything we've done. And we come to expect Nothing from God because He owes us nothing. We recognize ourselves as totally sinful and unworthy. But then the message of the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus breaks on our heart like the sun shining through after interminable gloom. Then we recognize how desperately we need Jesus. How desperately we need that one who was, in his own opinion, he made himself nothing. Leaving the perfection of heaven, he came and he made himself the unworthy slave of mankind. And again, that mission was what he was all about. Every moment of every day, every thought, word, and deed directed toward his mission of doing what we did not, what we could not, living God's will perfectly, and then offering that on Calvary's cross as payment for what we didn't do, couldn't do, wouldn't do. And that turns our focus. It's supposed to turn our focus away from ourselves and our failure to the one who succeeded for us and then credits his perfect life to us. And you know what else that then accomplishes? 
that kind of Savior can never be, oh, just an add-on, can never be something dull or meaningless or old hat. When we really look accurately into the mirror of God's law and see our failure, when we truly recognize perfection as that minimum standard and see how utterly we failed, then Jesus is something. He's everything to us. There's no greater possession in our lives, nor could there be, because He rescued us from that impossible, failed position. When we were dead in our sins, when we had nothing in us to do anything good or positive, He reached out, and God alone knows why, and picked us to bring us to faith set us on the path to life, alive, comforted us with the message, I've done what you were supposed to do. My perfection is yours because I took your sin to the cross. He creates the ability to believe that is true and then sustains that through a lifetime. Jesus has never diminished when we frankly, literally, admit that we have failed when we honestly confess our sins. And Jesus shines in our lives as the greatest possession. His sacrifice becomes all the more astounding, amazing. Nothing else even comes close. How precious indeed is this Lord Jesus, our Savior, our Master, the Savior of mankind, our only hope, our only Savior, literally. Amen.